Tonight, for our first message of the weekend, I, I wanted to bring us through one of the most important, uh, one of the most glorious uh, accounts of the biography of every Christian. So the biography of every Christian everywhere in every age. Uh, it's in this passage tonight that you and I will hear the story of our lives and ultimately God's story. And whenever we talk about our background, our stories, immediately we're thrusted into a conversation about our identity. And what I mean by the word identity is how do you understand yourself? How do you think about yourself? How do you perceive yourself? Uh, I could say it this way. Your identity holds the answers to big, life-directing, life-changing questions like, why do I exist? Why am I alive? What's my purpose? Our identity answers questions like, where do I belong? Like, who's going to love me? Who's going to accept and protect me? Where's my place in this world? Our identity holds our, our values, like what we believe is like good and right, and what we believe is bad and, and evil, what's important and what matters and what doesn't. All of these are identity questions. And how we answer these questions then is going to determine the trajectory of how we think, how we breathe, how we live, everything. And so to be clear, what I'm saying is that our behavior, our attitudes, our affections, our loves, our dreams, our aspirations, everything flows out of your identity. Who are you? And it's really not that hard to, to, to see the connection between your personal background and your identity, your story and your identity. They're linked. Uh, so just think, if I woke up this morning and, and couldn't remember my name, my birthday, my beautiful wife, my sons, my mom, siblings, cousins, my, my students, my leaders, if I couldn't remember any of you, if I woke up this morning with a memory completely erased, I'd have no idea who Robert Lee is. No idea who I am. What to do, what to believe, what to love, I'd be without an identity. And so uh, our stories, our backgrounds shape and form our identities. They're the, the map to your life. But here's the issue. Our world is steeped with false stories, wrong stories, lies. And then if, and if it's true that everything we believe and do is linked back to our identity, then it's central, it's key that we learn the truth. What is our identity? Uh, back when I was interviewing to become the youth pastor here at E-Free, the search committee asked me something like, what do you think are the three most pressing issues students are facing today? And my answer was sexuality, technology, and identity. And so our goal tonight is to look into God's word and to learn the true story of who we really are. And to this end, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And so let's go ahead and read our passage, uh, pray and dig in. If you get your papers out and read along, follow along with me. Paul writes, 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, Sovereign Lord, Holy One, God of the heavens and the earth, I ask You, Father, to grant us spiritual wisdom and insight. Open our hearts to hear the truth afresh. Renew us, shape us, strengthen us, save us, Lord, through Your Word through your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our passage tonight, it nicely breaks down into two major sections. And you probably noticed that during the reading. In, in verses 1 through 3, Paul describes the state uh, or the condition of all of humanity apart from Christ. Put another way, verses 1 through 3 contain the story of humanity as a whole. And spoiler alert, if you didn't already know, we're messed up. But in the second section, in verses 4 through 10, Paul goes on to describe what God has done to save humanity, which is the story of every Christian. Verses 1 through 3, the story of humanity Verses 4 through 7, the story of every Christian. And it's in these 10 verses that God clearly and explicitly gives us our identity. In these 10 verses, God tells us who we are as believers. And according to Paul then, our story begins in the same place it did for the believers in the city of Ephesus who received this letter. In verse 1, Paul writes... And you were dead. And so like the Ephesians, our story, your story, begins in a grave. Now Paul is not referring to physical death here, but spiritual death. And we know this because he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And since physically dead people don't walk, 
and trespasses and sins, then Paul must have a different understanding or sense of deadness, a spiritual deadness in mind. And in the Bible, often the word trespass refers to breaking God's explicit, explicit commands like you shall not murder, uh, you shall not covet, you shall not lie, and so forth, while the word sin it serves as a, as a bigger category uh, that refers to any and every thought, feeling, or action that's you know, contrary to God's character and what he desires for our lives. And so Paul puts these two categories together, right? Trespasses and sins to say that before Christ, the, the, the Ephesians, and by extension, all of humanity has rebelled and turned away from God in every way possible, whether it was directly disobeying his commands or being full of pride and greed and lust. And, and this was not just a one-off occasion because Paul says that this is how we walked. That's how we woke up in the morning. How we went to sleep, how we went to school, how we ate, breathed, and slept. Our entire lifestyle, our walk was one of trespassing and sinning. Trespassing and sinning. Trespassing and sinning against God. And so Paul uses this image of death to describe this lifestyle absolutely dominated, controlled by sin. And if you've ever been to a funeral, then you can see how this image is appropriate. You know that dead bodies don't speak. They don't make facial expressions. They don't smile. They don't see. They don't hear. They don't cry. They don't move. They're dead. Last year on July 4th, my good friend, Mark hung himself at the age of 33, and when I went to his funeral, it was an open casket, and when I approached that coffin and cried and sobbed, I got no response. Nothing. And Paul is saying here, that's the condition of every human soul apart from Christ. God speaks, God calls, God loves, He creates the heavens and the earth and they reveal His glory and power and wisdom, mountains and oceans. And yet apart from Christ, humanity remains unmoved, unresponsive, dead. But while totally unresponsive to God. In the rest of verses 2 and 3, Paul says that we were very active, very responsive to three powerful influences. Start reading with me again in verse 1. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And so Paul says that the first controlling influence over those dead in sin is the course of this world. Literally, uh, in the original language, it says the age of this world. And, and when Paul thinks of uh, this present age, he's talking about an age ravaged by sin, disease, and death. 
an age of sex trafficking, drug addiction, and child abuse, an age marked by bloody wars and famine, greedy kings and impoverished citizens, an age where children die from starvation while others die from overeating, an age of selfish, vain ambition, an age of lies and deceit, an age of utter darkness. And Paul says that in our state before Christ, we pursue, uh, we chase, we strive after what this dark, evil world deems as valuable and precious. We follow the course of the world. If the world values power and success, that's what dead sinners go after. If the world prizes wealth and possessions and toys, that's what we seek to accumulate. If the world admires outward appearances, we put all our attention on what we see in the mirror. If the world affirms premarital sex and homosexuality, we go along with everyone else. Students, according to Paul, the world, this present dark age, uh, exercises a massive controlling power over those dead in sin. And and not only the world, but also the devil. Look back at verse 2. Paul writes, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now that word prince could also be translated as ruler, as it is, for example, in John 14.30. Is there a cross-reference on your sheet? Jesus says to his disciples, I will no longer walk with you for, why? The ruler, the prince of this world is coming. And there are many other passages that use this kind of language to talk about the devil. And what's clear then is that the devil has some kind of authority over this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. And airs, which is just another way to talk about the dark spiritual realm. So put simply then, there is a supernatural being crafty and powerful, who organizes and leads legions of evil, invisible spiritual beings in rebellion against God. And Paul says that same spirit, that same spirit is now at work, which is where we get our word energizing. The the devil's at work energizing in the sons of disobedience. That is those dead in sin. And so I think this is somewhat startling uh, because so often when we think of people following Satan, you know, we envision all black clothes, chains, pentagrams, uh, seances and blood sacrifices on Halloween. But Paul is saying that the devil is just as much at work energizing in that drunken partier. And that prideful athlete and that selfish businessman, if not in Christ, humanity is dead in sin, following the course of the world and the devil himself. And if there wasn't enough against you and against me, if there wasn't enough coming from the outside, to control and dominate us. If there wasn't enough there, Paul goes on to say in verse 3 that our very own nature wars against God. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, before we discuss this third controlling influence over dead sinners, which is the flesh, I want to draw our attention back to verse 1. Did you notice that Paul began by saying, and you were dead? But now here he says, among whom, he switches it, among whom we all once lived. And I think this is a crucial observation because Paul, in this letter, he's primarily writing to a group of Gentile, non-Jewish Christians who lived in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus, which in the first century was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire, even ranked as high in influence as Rome itself. It was located near the sea, which made it a natural hub for all kinds of trade and commerce and business. In fact, some historians think that Ephesus might have been one of the richest regions in the Roman Empire. And not only did it draw in people from all over the world for business, Ephesus boasted what was considered the seventh wonder of the ancient world, which was this gigantic temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman god Artemis. And according to some writers, this temple was the largest building in the known world at that time. So in many ways, uh, you could think of Ephesus like the New York City of the Roman Empire renowned for business and architecture and global influence. But, but why does this matter? Why does knowing Ephesus was this great city matter? Well, because Ephesus would have been a city absolutely saturated with godless beliefs, customs, and practices. So that any Ephesian Gentile, who would have heard the gospel and believed in Jesus would have been coming out of an obviously corrupt and immoral life. So when Paul says to the Ephesians that they were dead in sin, following the course of this world and the devil, they would have resonated. They would have said, yes and amen, I was. But Paul switches from and you in verse 1 to we. That is, we God-fearing Jewish people who obey the law, attend synagogue worship, tithe, keep the Sabbath, and all the rest, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Students, it would be hard to find a person more devoted to obeying every letter and every dot of the law than the Apostle Paul before he encountered the risen Christ. In fact, just listen to him. Listen to his brief resume he gives in Philippians 3, 4 verse through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, right? A religious leader, a teacher. As to zeal and passion, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet, he says that even he, even he once lived in the passions of his flesh. And in this context, the word passions refers to, you know, those strong, powerful desires for sin. Lust, greed, envy, deceit, jealousy, so forth. 
And Paul uses the word flesh to describe the source. Where do those passions, where does my lust, where does my greed, where does my pride come from? Paul says your flesh, your flesh. Put another way, for Paul, the flesh is this aspect, uh, that inner part of us that's always pushing and pulling us away from God. It's that inner force in you that compels and lures us towards sin and disobedience. It's that steady, what feels like ever-present, never-relenting urge to abandon God and go our own way. That's your flesh. That's your flesh. And Paul says he too, even as zealous as a Pharisee as he was, lived enslaved to his flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the flesh is not just controlling, you know, our bodily impulses and cravings, but also our thoughts, right? Our pains, our fantasies, our perspective. So I, I see this and you to and we as a great warning. It's a warning. We can be religious. We can do all the church stuff. We can attend worship, sing songs, give money, serve in ministry, read the Bible. We can do everything the Apostle Paul did as a Pharisee and still be dead in sin. And this is why Everybody who comes to saving faith in Christ, whether from a Christian home or prostitution, has an amazing testimony. To recap then, the story of humanity is that we are dead in sin, living in gross rebellion against God, uh, dominated, controlled, influenced by the world, the devil, and our own flesh. And when we survey all that together, we see why Paul says at the end of verse 3, and therefore we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were born in sin, lived in sin, destined to die in sin, fully deserving of the holy wrath and vengeance of the Almighty God coming upon evil. And that's Paul's point in these three verses. Is that left to ourselves, we had no hope. We were completely destitute, poor, blind, deaf, broken, lost in this world. That's the bad news. But, but the next section tells us the good news. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. We were dead, but God made us alive. God, not us. God, full of compassion and concern and a divine, infinite, everlasting, steadfast love for you and me, even when we didn't want Him, even when we happily pursued our, our sin in darkness, He chose to make you alive, to live. And Paul is, is so eager to emphasize that it was all of God and not any of us that he just breaks up his thought. He just blurts out, by grace you have been saved. It just comes out of nowhere. He just can't, he just can't hold it in. It's by grace. 
That is, you weren't saved because you were anything good in you. You weren't saved because you were handsome or pretty or smart or cool or athletic or moral. Not too long ago, I went to a Christian concert with uh, Tiffany. And while speaking during one of the interludes, the lead, lead singer, he, he's telling us, he says, you know, by sacrificing his own son, by sending Jesus to the cross, God showed us how much we're worth. How much we're worth. I'm like, did he ever read this passage? The death and crucifixion of God's most precious and holy son does not show us how much we're worth or how good we are. It shows how great and kind and loving God is. It does not show you how much you're worth. It shows you how desperately sick and evil and twisted you were that God's son had to die for you. By grace you've been saved, Paul says. And God does not just make us alive, but Paul goes on. It's so rich. and says he raised us up with him and seated us with him. And, and did you notice that each of those verbs are in the past tense? Like they already happened. Made us alive. Raised us up and seated, seated us. But, but how could this be? I'm here. How am I seated in heaven? Students, when we repent from our sins and put our faith in Christ in that very moment, we are joined to Christ, made one with Christ by the Spirit so that we share and participate in His very life. That means by faith we come to share in Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation in heaven. That's why. In every step, Paul keeps mentioning Jesus. We were made alive with Christ, raised with Him, seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He can't stop saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all through Him. It's all through the Son of God for you. And this theme of with and in Christ continues into verse 7 where Paul tells us why. Why did God unite us to his son? Look there with me. He says, so that, here's the purpose, in the coming ages, eons, he might show the immeasurable, inexhaustible riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Where? In Christ Jesus Brothers and sisters, our union with Christ by faith is the great divine mystery of the gospel. That God, so rich in mercy and love, would take fleshly sinners captive to the world and the devil and then take those fleshly corrupt evil sinners and bind them to His holy and precious and blameless and pure Son so that they can experience wave upon wave and oceans and oceans of kindness and joy and beauty for thousands and millions and billions of years forever. And this is why we cry out, who is like you? Who is like you, God? 
How could you be so holy? How could you be so just and so pure yet love dead, defiled sinners so much? How could you give us so much honor? How could you give us all things? How could you join us to your son? What is this mystery? The gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) That good news. We were dead, but God made us alive in Christ. Now in verse 8, because because Paul didn't say everything he wanted about God's grace early in verse 5, he returns to the subject. He wants to talk about it again. Look there with me. Paul picks up where he left off, saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith. But, but then, just to make sure, like you really understand the free and undeserved nature of God's grace and salvation, he continues and he says, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not by what you've done, so that no one may boast. In other words, Paul says, let me say it again as clear as possible. You did nothing. You did nothing. But what about my faith? Didn't I choose to believe? Yes, you did. But when Paul says, and this is not your own doing, he's referring back to the whole process of salvation that he describes at the beginning of verse 8, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. According to Paul, then, then even our very own faith comes to us as a gift. We don't muster it up from our flesh. It comes from heaven. But although our salvation is, is, is not a result of works, it's not. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That is, you know, his craft, his handiwork, created. And that word created is always used by Paul to describe the divine act of bringing something into existence. He brings something into existence. So so we were brought into a new existence, into a new life. We were created in Christ Jesus for Netflix and YouTube. Instagram and TikTok, vacations and video games, popularity and fame, Sex and drugs, according to the apostle, what were you made alive for? What was your purpose? For good works. Students, you were saved from sin, death, and the devil himself to work, to labor, to to pour your life out as a drink offering for something so much bigger than the latest sports season or hottest TV show. You were made to work for the glory of a God who's going to bless you forever and the good of others. That's your story. And listen, Jesus talks the same way, speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says what? You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what Search Boy is all about. That's why we're here. God, and did you notice uh, four good works which he prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them? Did you know how, and you were dead in sin and walking in sin and trespasses, but by the time we get to verse 10, you're walking in the good works that God predetermined for you in eternity past. God in heaven decided that you would be painting porches and digging dirt and all the good works you did today, you fulfilled by his good plan. He prepared those for you. So this is your identity. You are a great and terrible sinner saved by grace to work for the glory of our loving and merciful God and the good of others. That's your story. That's who you are. But the question is, will you live out of that identity? Will you live out of that identity? Let's pray. Father in heaven, your promises are so great and our love is so small. Our faith is small. But man, you're rich in mercy. <laughs> you love us. You pour your mercy out on us. And so, Father, I just pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. I pray that this gospel would just wash over us again and again and again and stir up our affections, uh, help us renounce and turn away from sin, help us give our lives to the good works that you prepared for us. Father, we need your grace. We need your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.